Welcome to the inaugural episode of the Chadcast. In this episode, I spoke to Amber Athey from The Daily Caller about a variety of topics. Okay, so I started the recording, and uh, so I'll just get right into it. So, Great. Um, I, I saw you were camp- at Campus Reform and then now at Daily Caller. Um, I guess generally, I, I was interested also because like Tucker Carlson created Daily Caller and what the atmosphere is like there. Yeah, so the Daily Caller is one of the most fun places I've ever worked. Um, it's a very casual work environment. Um, you know, people wear jeans, people wear shorts. Um, there's not really like a super strict time schedule. You're allowed to work from home. So the general way that most people look at it is as long as you're getting your work done and as long as you're putting in your hours, they're not too worried about the other stuff which I think is the way a lot of workplaces should be run because it kind of limits those other distractions and the sole focus is how much value are you adding to the organization. Um, but we have a lot of fun there. Um, we're all, most of the employees are really young. Um, so I would say most people are between like 20 and 30 years old um, with the exception of maybe the editorial staff. So we're all friends in and outside of work. We, hang out on the weekends and it's just a really um, fun and rewarding place to work. And it's nice to see such young people having such an impact on the world of media because we are one of the fastest growing sites in the news business right now. And are you guys all in DC or because you said some people work at home, they're not all in DC. Yeah, it's a mix. Um, Most people work out of DC, but we have um, people in Ohio and um, we have contributors that write from all over. Um, so there is, there are some people, um, one of our political reporters, Chuck Ross, for example, doesn't work in DC. Um, and he's one of our most influential writers. Okay. And then I guess to get a, the feel of how you came to your like political stance, like I kind of, I don't I don't want to make assumptions, but like, how did you come to your views and like, what is your general, like, uh, thought on what how america should be or i guess the world in general yeah so i grew up in a really small town that was mainly a small farming community in western maryland and my uh my mom is a stay-at-home mom and my dad is a plumber so he's in a union so um we are kind of that blue collar small town family that people talk about when they talk about trump voters Um, I actually did not vote for Trump in the general election. Um, but I've always been conservative sort of by nature of how I was raised. My parents always taught me about the value of hard work and taking responsibility for yourself. And, you know, no one's going to hand anything to you. And especially considering I didn't grow up in, you know, I grew up in like low middle, middle class family, blue collar. So I did have to work really hard to get out of my small town. And a lot of people don't make it out of my small town. Um, So I was really focused on school growing up. Uh, I put a lot of time into my studies and, you know, I didn't party a lot in high school and I ended up um, going to Georgetown and getting a lot of financial aid to go there. And while I was at Georgetown, I had always, like I said, I'd always been conservative by how I was raised, but my parents didn't talk about politics a whole, whole lot. And then my first year at Georgetown, I lived on a floor with all very, very left-leaning 
progressive liberals. And that was when I started to really dig into what I believed. And I just didn't buy into this narrative that women and minorities victims that needed this extra help in order to get ahead in life. And I was not of the mindset that, you know, people don't have to take responsibility for their own lot in life. You know, I don't believe people are a victim of their circumstances. Um, so I was always battling against that when I was at Georgetown. And I ended up getting really involved in the college Republicans while I was there. Um, and that was a really transformative experience for me because I finally had a group of people that I felt were like-minded individuals. And we kind of banded together and tried to fight back against the overwhelming liberal culture at Georgetown. Um, everything kind of came to a head my junior year, actually, when I became chair of College Republicans and I brought Christina Hoff Summers to campus. Um, I've always been a huge fan of hers because she talks about equality feminism, which is the idea that, you know, women aren't always victims in life. They're not constantly being oppressed by men when, um, in fact, men have their own problems that they have to deal with. So she was coming to speak on, on equality feminism. And the event ended up being heavily protested by the left. Um, they called me and Christina Hoff Summers a rape apologist, a racist, just about every name in the book. Um, the story ended up getting covered by campus reform. And so that was how I first got in touch with them. Um, and then a year later, they ended up giving me my first job. So that was kind of my foray into politics. And in general, I would say I'm probably a libertarian leaning conservative. Um, at the base of it all, I think the government should leave people alone as much as possible. Um, but I also believe in there being, uh, you know, a huge importance of civil society in the way that people interact with each other, in the way that private charity and communities can um, take the role of the government. Um, I don't think the government is really ever the, the best means of allocation of resources or the best means of providing people with that hand up that they sometimes might need um, in order to reach their full potential. Yeah, there's a lot there. I mean, how much do you put an emphasis on the commons and how important is that? Like something we all work towards and kind of give a little. Yeah. I, I mean, I think there's definitely a role for that, but it, it comes more from the community rather than government. As I mentioned, um, I definitely growing up in a small town, saw the importance of, um, you know, working with your neighbor and, you know, if, if someone was stuck late at a, a sports practice after school, there would always be someone there that would give them a ride home. And it's not because anyone told them to, but it was because it was the right thing to do. And I still believe that people have that good in them and they have that capability to do something because it's the right thing or because their neighbor demands it and not because the government says you have to do this because otherwise we're going to force you. I guess, yeah, before we jump into another thing, we live in like a very low trust society right now. That's why, I mean, everyone feels like right. atomized and individualistic. You think that is something that we can get back to when we are only getting more divided and more segmented as a country, like in every aspect. Yeah, and I think, I think it's possible. And um, I know there's been a lot of research on the subject, for example, Robert Putnam has done a lot of research on civil society and how it's declining. But I think a lot of the 
division that we see is on a large scale when we think of who we are as Americans. But when you go back to the small towns and these small communities, I think you still do see the way that people's lives are intertwined. And with the growth of big cities, I think that might be the biggest challenge to civil society. And I currently live in um, Arlington, Virginia, just out of DC. So I definitely see the way that, you know, people don't really interact the same way that they do in small towns. So I'm not necessarily sure how um, civil society translates in big cities. And I think that's going to be a big problem that we're going to have to address in the future or now, actually. I agree. Um, so first, like, article, I have, like, a bunch of them, but I, I took some of yours. Uh, you talked about the uh, J.K. Rowling thing, and, I mean, mm-hmm. you, you covered that, but uh, have you noticed, this is more like a meta thing, but how people use Harry Potter for their political, like, comparisons? Like, is that something? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I see it a lot, especially on Twitter. You'll see people uh, retweet an article about President Trump and they'll say, oh my gosh, this is exactly like Lord Voldemort. And <laughs> I didn't uh, grow up reading Harry Potter or I've seen maybe one or two of the movies, but I just think it's so strange how people use, uh, I guess it's a children, young adult novel, fiction novel as a way to advance their political message. It seems rather childish to me. The other thing that I've noticed on top of Harry Potter um, is that liberals have now started using 1984 as a means of criticism of President Trump. And I find that really funny because conservatives have been talking about 1984 for a really long time about how it's evidence of what happens when government gets too big or when the state starts spying on you, um, when you give too much of your life over to the state. And to see liberals now using uh, 1984, I guess, to talk about Trump's use of like fake news or alternative facts is really funny to me because they apparently didn't um, care when conservatives were ringing the, you know, the bell about the other issues that are raised in that book. Um, so it kind of seems like liberals are now just appropriating it for their own use. Well, it's in it's it's so untrue because uh, if he really did have the 1984 state. He wouldn't have all of these leaks of like his conversations or uh, internal affairs, right? Right. It's right. literally the the those agencies are working against him. Like that, nineteen eighty four has been already created and it's been in place. But the yep. uh, yeah, yeah, because like there yeah, was especially a, with the NSA spying scandals. There was like a, a Twitter account rogue uh, White House senior advisor. Uh, mm-hmm. and uh, whoever it is wrote like and I have it I don't know they wrote uh, when the, sh- the president has shitty reductive ideas they're going to be made public so maybe work on that and then there won't be leaks like, that's an insane way to think of it like I get to decide what uh, what gets leaked if I like it right and the and it's a national security issue at this point um, with the recent leaks of the president's conversations with foreign leaders that is just completely unprecedented. Um, I, don't, I don't think that's ever happened before. And it's a direct threat to national security. How is the president going to negotiate with foreign leaders and have conversations with them if the foreign leader can't trust that that's going to be kept secret? Yeah, and this happened uh, multiple times. I mean, twice with the, uh, the Australian prime minister, right? The conversations were leaked. Right. Yeah, it's wild. I guess another uh, 
on the White House front. This is like a general question because I have no idea and maybe you have more insight. But I wrote like a note here, general questions about H.R. McMaster. Like what is the, uh, that's the name, right? H.R.? I think. Yeah. 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 What is what is your take on that? Like, what's going on there? Because it's like he seems to be uh, at odds with other people in the uh, the cabinet. I just have no idea what's going on. Like, what the the truth of him and what McMaster is doing and what his goals are. Right. I have a general idea, but I don't know the specific ins and outs. But I do know um, the Daily Caller has spoken to former um, NSA officials who have sharply criticized McMaster um, saying that he opposes anything that Trump wants to do. And um, there have been reports of Trump getting into it with McMaster. So it seems to me that they just don't have the same policy goals right now, considering Trump's recent purges of the communications department. Um, it's quite possible that McMaster could be on the outs, but I wouldn't Is he, though? say that with any certainty. Because it seems very strange that he's in there, and he says very anti-Trump uh, things. Like, one of the things is, like, mm-hmm. being negative of Israel, like, calling them the occupying force, and Trump is, like, very pro-Israel. I mean, he went to APAC and told them all, uh, we're right. going to put the uh, embassy in Jerusalem. Like, don't worry, guys. And that's, like, in direct opposition. So I don't get why he wouldn't be immediately fired. There, uh, that's why yeah, I think there's something really extra. Yeah, it's really strange. Right, because Trump came out after all of these reports backing up McMaster and, you know, saying that he's, he's, here's a quote, he said, General McMaster and I are working very well together. He is a good man and very pro-Israel. I am grateful for the work he continues to do serving our country. Um, which is just bizarre. The whole story is really bizarre. Um, so on one hand, he's praising his work and saying he's a good man. But then on the other hand, there's all these reports and leaks about how they're constantly at odds. And just based on recent events, it doesn't seem like Trump is the type of person who really wants someone that's constantly pushing back on him. Um, my only thought is that perhaps General Kelly is telling him to keep McMaster. Yeah, I, yeah. I I just like from what I've read, I I've got no good uh, like take on it. Usually, it's pretty easy to uh, well, not pretty easy, but you read enough sources, you can kind of get a feel of what's going on. It's just very mm-hmm. uh, uh, confusing. And as I, I'm as I'm talking and as you bring things up, I'm like writing notes to bring up, and then I feel like there's like too much. But <clears throat> you brought up fake news, and I feel like that the goal of that was like a psyop to make it so that only the correct sources can be used and like you can just discredit like any other site that's not uh an approved one mm-hmm. and uh i mean i guess just generally i'd ask like or bring up the the potential of how uh, damaging that could be if you make it so there's only like approved sources and you basically cut out other people and other news outlets Right. Well, I think um, there's a great example here from the Daily Caller, actually. So um, a lot of people on the left call the Daily Caller alt-right, which is pretty silly. I mean, yes, we lean right, we lean conservative, but we definitely don't take a specific stance on any issues and we don't support any specific candidates. And 
we're definitely not alt right. Um, but I'd say like a proto uh, conservative, like very much the word conservative is applicable to Daily Caller. Right, right, and yeah, and that's what we bill ourselves as. And there, if you've been following it, there's this huge story right now about Debbie Wasserman Schultz and an IT staffer that she had hired. He he and his brothers were accused of uh, wrongfully gaining access to a bunch of uh, congressional members' email accounts and unlawfully reading the emails. And apparently they had access to committee emails as well. And after the IT staffer uh, was put under federal investigation, uh, they seized smashed hard drives from his home. Uh, Then he tried to flee to Pakistan with $300,000. He was finally arrested uh, for bank fraud. This entire time, Debbie Wasserman Schultz had this guy on her payroll and apparently can, uh, intended to continue paying him after he fled to Pakistan. So it reeks of corruption. There's a lot of questions swirling about these reports. The Daily Caller has been reporting on this through our investigative group for probably the past six months now. And a lot of people are refusing to accept that any of this could be true because it's coming from the Daily Caller, even as we have you know, official reports from the FBI confirming much of the details that have been in the reports. Finally, after much ado on on Fox News and uh, One America News and other sort of right-leaning news networks, the New York Times and BuzzFeed decided to dig into our report. And not only did they leave out half of the details, but they pegged us as conspiracy theorists that were just coming up with all this to try to draw attention away from the Trump-Russia collusion story. Um, so it's incredibly dangerous uh, for people to, you know, discredit something just because of this, the, they don't like the source that it comes from. This is a huge story. It could have national security implications that these Pakistani IT staffers were wrongfully reading emails of congressional members, um, but the left doesn't want to hear it because it comes from the Daily Caller. Um, I think... That's kind of connected to the Harry Potterism because um, people, the education, in my opinion, has become so, uh, I don't know, you can't compare it because I didn't live in the past, but I feel like it's become so easy and almost like um, critical thinking is not pushed. It's just kind of, they teach you how to learn X, but they don't teach you how to like critically think or um, uh, work outside the box. It's just kind of, they give you a playbook and say, do this. And for that, because of that, people uh, kind of lack agency. They don't want to do their own work. They just kind of read a headline and that's it. Like Trump is uh, related, uh, like working with Russia. That's just true. I'm not going to dig deeper. Yeah, I think you're right. And one of the reasons why I'm so grateful to have gone to a heavily liberal university as a conservative was that I was forced to constantly read into every single thing that I did and make sure that my arguments were really structurally sound because otherwise I would just get picked apart. And I remember having classes with biased leftist professors where they would give a reading assignment that, you know, said one thing about how, for example, maybe uh, supply side economics or not a feasible economic plan. And so I would have to go and find another economic paper that was about the other side and read that and try to come to some kind of nuanced conclusion. Um, A lot of people in college don't have to do that because they agree with everything the professor's telling them. So they just take everything at, you know, at their word. 
And I think that's what people do with news sources as well. They see New York Times, Huffington Post, Washington Post. Like you said, they read the headline and they take it, you know, as, as the gospel. So to jump to another thing, because now I have like a bunch of things I want to run through before I, before I lose you. But uh, the one big thing that was interesting I saw on Breitbart is uh, they were talking about Cory Booker. He's going to like put out a bill to uh, legalize marijuana. And what I thought was interesting is that like in the comments, everyone was pro uh, pro legalizing it. And I think uh, it's going to I think it's going to get passed only because there's so much uh, like support for it. Or at least I see it support everywhere. Like obviously like the left and especially libertarian left, like they just want to 420 it up. But these uh, it was interesting to see Breitbart, Breitbart commenters so uh, pro legalizing it. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, obviously, the major opposition would probably come from the religious right. And while Breitbart does have a huge hold on um, a large swath of the right in terms of population, there aren't really a lot of people in office that are super sympathetic to Breitbart. So I wonder if that would translate over into how people actually vote. Because when I think of Republicans in, in Congress, I tend to think more of like evangelical law and order type Republicans. Yeah. So you don't think that that would have a chance uh, to pass? I think. Um, it's, so it's a federal, it'd be federally legal. Yeah. At this point, I'm going to say no. I think the push for legalization needs to go through the states a bit longer first mm -hmm. and get more victories on the state level. I would say maybe in five years. Okay. But right now I'm going to guess that it's not going to pass. The next thing is the, the Obamacare vote, basically like people who campaigned for that. They would repeal it. Like mo most notably John McCain had even an ad that he's like, uh, I will repeal it. Vote for me. One of his campaign ads, like he's leading the fight. For repeal and yep. he votes against it and even uh the other two senators right collins and murkowski voted no um do, mm -hmm. you, do you think these people will i mean john mccain just got reelected, so he's he's good but um do you think like these rhinos will keep their seats or will i think they will sadly and the reason why is that they're both in sort of moderate centrist states. Lisa Murkowski is from Alaska and um, obviously Susan Collins is from Maine who also has, I believe, uh, Angus King who's an independent. Yeah. Um, so just by nature of their states being pretty moderate, I don't think they would necessarily lose their seats over this unless someone were able to successfully primary them. Um, but I think it, it's obviously a pretty scummy thing to do to run on this platform of repealing Obamacare. I believe Murkowski did as well. I don't think Collins did. Um, but when you look at the repeal vote back when Obama was in office, obviously Murkane and Murkowski uh, both voted for that. Obviously, they, they wanted to vote for it when it didn't really matter because exactly. Obama wasn't going to sign it. But when it actually comes down to the wire, they're not willing to, you know, put their name on it. I think I would hope that their constituents would be upset by that and disappointed. But 
given the fact that McCain was just reelected. And like I said, Maine and Alaska are pretty centrist states. Unfortunately, I think there will be little consequences for the way that they flip flopped on that issue. Do you think, uh, what do you think has the most likely chance of getting through? Like what type of uh, Trump agenda uh, thing can get through the Senate? What can they agree oh, upon? Oh gosh. Yeah. I don't know. Um, if you had asked me a few months ago, I would have said tax reform, but apparently now that's turning into a huge battle as well. I think, uh, well, they've had some success, right, on doing um, smaller immigration type um, measures. So perhaps if they try to break these things up into smaller pieces, instead of doing sweeping reforms, they can have a few successes. But the Senate is tough because the Republicans are on such different sides. I mean, you have Rand Paul, who's essentially a libertarian. Yeah. And then you have Murkowski and Collins on the other side that are essentially centrist or rhinos so it's borderline impossible with just a a slight majority for them to really pass anything because they have to appeal to both the libertarian side and the rhino side of the party hopefully what happens is they can make that case in the 2018 elections and try to pick up a couple of more seats but that might be sort of a long shot as well well, how about uh, I saw a tweet from Chuck Schumer and I screenshotted it, the the better deal, a better deal on trade and jobs. And it was basically like oh, a campaign oh, yeah. Trump uh, rhetoric, like stop uh, trade cheating and market manipulation, which is China, and then ensure that buy yeah. American is a national priority. Right. right. Yeah. The whole better deal campaign is just recycled from other people. Um, so a year ago, Paul Ryan and uh, Republicans in the House had a campaign called A Better Way. Um, as you mentioned, the sort of America first trade stuff is right from Trump's campaign. And then there was some other stuff in there about um, antitrust. Um, and there were two other things. I can't remember what they are off the top of my head, but those were pulled straight from Hillary's campaign. So the Democrats have had now had pretty much two years to try to come up with some kind of new messaging campaign um, since Obama was leaving office and they've still been unable to come up with anything really original or compelling. Um, So they have a serious messaging problem. I think that's going to continue to harm them. And then they obviously have a huge rift in their party with the um, super progressives, you know, Bernie bros, but then they have the blue dog Democrats that they need to appeal to as well. So they're going to have a tough go at it uh, in the coming years. This Okay, so I I disagree with you on that. And it's because okay. of like the meta. Uh, so like demographically, we see just like uh, more Democrat type voters. And also, if we just look at like the male, female type thing, way more women are single and not getting Well, everyone, even like guys are not married. And like single women are like Democrat, like 100%. You know, like I don't know what the number is, but it's very high. So I think we're we're only going to be like a more Democrat voting country in all aspects. Yeah, that's a good point. I I still think that um, the sort of uh, rural blue collar thing is going to be a problem in states like Ohio, and oh, yeah. Michigan, because 
the Democrats have continued to sort of double down on social issues, which we know now that those voters really don't care about. Um, and the economic message is just straight ripped off of Trump. So I don't know if that's really going to translate. Um, but I think you're right in terms of um, demographics and uh, because rising urban populations. If we had, uh, if we had Hillary and she granted amnesty to like all the people here who are illegal, we'd effectively have Democrat for the rest of America, right? Just because <laughs> I don't doubt it. <laughs> because the yeah. the real crazy thing is, if Trump wanted to, he can't help himself in twenty twenty because the census is in twenty twenty and illegals count towards the census. Is that correct? They get uh, counted towards the census, and then the electoral college is then. Uh, from that census, uh, we distribute electoral votes. I think, I believe, is that uh, correct? I can't, I can't say whether. Uh, Let's just, for the hypothetical, really sure. I think it is. I think <laughs> sure. it is. So if you, okay. because right now even California gets those uh, illegals as part of their uh, electoral vote, which is, makes their number like huge. But if he wanted to, he'd deport everyone and then he'd effectively change the electoral map like insane for the 2024 and 2028 election, but that doesn't affect him you know, for his reelectability, but it's huge. Yeah. That's an interesting point. I hadn't thought of that before. That's, that's a big one for me. Like if I was Trump, I would, everybody, all the overstays, which is 50%, like 50% of illegals are overstays, which I don't know how you can't just find those guys. Like you, they came in, you know, their names, you know what they look like, mm-hmm. but um yeah that's my big thing is electoral college because it's right now it's super tight but if you were to do that you could shift it very uh, very big and i think populism is the way to go what do you think about that like it seems bernie and trump uh really hit on some populism during the campaign yeah i mean i i don't think it's the worst thing um the main thing that i disagree with trump on is with trade and um, that's because I'm a huge uh, proponent of free trade, but I also understand how that can negatively affect people in manufacturing jobs. So, yeah, like I would agree. I, I, yeah, it, but that's like the the past gen- the boomer mindset, right? Uh, the right to free like free trade does sound great, and we want the free market because then you get the best price, and then uh, everyone wins effectively. Mm-hmm. But it 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 doesn't seem to have worked that way. And then that's why you have places like Wisconsin and Michigan that that voted for him, right? Because they want those manufacturing jobs back, right? So. And I and I definitely think it's it's fair to say some of the trade deals that we've entered into aren't exactly fair for the United States, and we should definitely try to renegotiate so that we get better deals. But I'm also not on the side of saying, well, if someone one's throwing a bunch of tariffs on us then we should just do the same thing back to them yeah so it's kind of a give and take for me um so we're at 30 minutes i still want to get a couple things i think we're if yeah you have i have minutes. i have a few more minutes Excellent. if you want to keep going yeah, yeah i would like to i'd like to get it this is like a more uh lighter one because it's about kid rock but i also it, so two future okay. yeah two future elections uh, one is Kid Rock in the in the Senate, but also Peter Thiel. Uh, he's not running, but it's like uh, there was an article of how Gavin Newsom just made or made camp. He has a ton of campaign money, like he's uh, bigger than mm-hmm. the next three or something like that in California. So my first thing is 
there was article Kid Rock. Uh, there was a poll and said he would win in a general election. Then they did another poll. He was not winning. But the, uh, the Debbie Stubenow, I believe, is who he'd be running mm-hmm. against. Yeah, and she basically like brushed it off that he has no chance. I was wondering, what do you think? Because I think he does actually have a chance. Yeah, I think he does. And I think her saying that he doesn't have a chance is exactly what people said about Trump. It's the same idea. It's a celebrity who's appealing to blue collar, middle class families. And people wrote off Trump. They said he has no chance of winning the primary. And then it was he has no chance of winning the election up until pretty much 8pm on election night when he took Florida. Um, So I think it's pretty naive for her to say that. And like you mentioned, there was a poll that had him beating her um, and winning the election. And uh, just for anecdotal evidence, I've talked to quite a few people who voted for Trump and they are all in on Kid Rock already. So I think he has a, he has a viable chance because he hits on that populist um, middle America message, just like Trump did. He can campaign with Ted Nugent. And uh, <laughs> yeah, there are two peas in a pod. <laughs> so then, and then on California. So then, now I kind of think of uh, Cal Exit too. But um, I've said, and this is just like a question that Peter Thiel, if he had run for 2018, or even, I mean, it's he's not going to, but he could have won um, California as like he'd be the first gay uh, governor, and like people would eat that up just for like the. Uh, like the virtue signaling aspect of it. Like what do you think would happen if it was like Gavin Newsom versus Peter Thiel for the uh, governorship? That would be tough. Um, I hear what you're saying about him being the first gay governor, but he was basically blacklisted from Silicon Valley. So I'm not sure that his minority status can overcome Mm -hmm. his right wing politics, especially not in California. Anywhere else, I might agree with you, but California is kind of a different animal, and that's the one state where people really do care about social issues. Yeah, it's wild here. I'm in I'm in Los Angeles, and it's uh, oh okay, so you're right in the thick of it. Yeah, it's wild. Um, so I think. Oh, actually, one more thing before we end it. If I could ask, what do you think of CalExit? The idea of it, if it's possible, and if it uh, it's a good thing. <laughs> Um, half jokingly, I think, uh, it would be great because <laughs> no offense to you. Obviously. No, don't worry. I despise yeah, everyone. But, okay. Yeah. I've, uh, I've been to Los Angeles once and, uh, what I always tell people is I had a great time there and it was beautiful, but I could not stand the people. Um, it just seems like a different world almost. And I heard, uh, there was a Cal exit, uh, I guess he was the vice president of the movement on Tucker the other night. Yeah. So you wrote an article on that. Yeah, so he was talking about how people from California are just different than the rest of America. And I think that's true to some extent. I don't think it'll ever happen. Um, I think, uh, was West Virginia the last state to try this? They filed a, um, or maybe it was it was Western Maryland, I think, wanted to secede from uh, the other half of Maryland. And it didn't. those things never really go anywhere. I think it, they... It's because... The federal government has to okay it, right? That's why it doesn't right. go anywhere. Right. And also, it's usually a, a very, very small swath of people who actually want to leave the union, and it's usually just to get attention. Um, but this guy who was on Tucker was a total nut job anyway. He was talking about how 
it's actually a good thing that the middle class is leaving California for places like Texas because it makes more room for immigrants to come in. And I know a lot of progressives, but I don't know very many progressives that would say that it's a good thing for the middle class to be leaving their state. Well, I mean, I think it's they're just implicitly saying they don't want white people in California. Like that is what they're saying. And yeah, that's what it is. Like demographic replacement is effectively what he was talking about. Right. Yeah. And that might appeal to the left, the most left of the left, which is California. That's, that's true. Yeah. But, um, no, I don't see Cali's it happening, but, it's too bad. I would vote for it. I would, I would, I would <laughs> campaign for it. Um, but yeah, I, I, I could see it kind of backfiring where a lot of conservatives would get in on the effort. Oh, yeah. That's California, please leave. <laughs> we have a lot of guys here, and we all, like, uh, we, secret, we don't secretly. We wish openly that would happen. But. Yeah. I mean, it's hard for me to take it seriously, but I, I think it's, it's funny. Well, I think that was pretty good half hour. Um I thank you for uh, answering questions and uh, I don't know, I guess good luck in the future. Maybe I, uh, maybe in the future I ask for you to uh, come on again. Sure. Yeah. Uh, thanks for having me on. Sorry if I got a little rambly at points. <laughs> no, no, don't, uh, don't. It was excellent. Okay, great. I'm glad I could help out. Yeah, and if you ever want to like uh, come in here, I mean, uh, maybe not. Don't don't come in the survey. It's uh, it's like the wild west <laughs> in here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>